welcome to the first ever Equal Experts podcast. Thank you for joining us. Um, my name is John Attaway. I work here at Equal Experts on the uh, web content side of things, chiefly as a writing background on the uh, website and the blog and so on. But uh, we want to start doing a bit more to share uh, the ideas and the people and the expertise that's within our network. So more in the way of video and podcasts like this one. Um, for this first ever podcast, we're talking to Darren Linden, who is a transformation director here at Equal Experts. Um, if you keep listening, you'll hear all about his uh, illustrious career and the background he's had in shaping his, firstly his own business and then uh, leading transformation efforts at the likes of Sky and O2 before coming to Equal Experts last year. He's full of insights on how to approach transformation from uh, the perspective of businesses facing these huge disruptions to their uh, business landscape. So it's really worth listening to what he has to say on the subject and I hope you find it interesting. We'd love any feedback you have. Uh, if you want to get a hold of us, you can find Equal Experts on Facebook and LinkedIn to search for Equal Experts and also Twitter with the handle uh, imaginatively at Equal Experts. So uh, do give us a shout if you've got any thoughts on this or things you'd like to hear about and uh, we'll see what we can do. Thanks very much and enjoy the podcast. Darren Linden, who is the Transformation Director at Equal Experts, um, and uh, who joined us towards the end of 2017? No, in July. In July? July, yeah, yeah. Oh, there you yeah. go, time flies. Time, yeah, it's gone very quickly. Time flies. Um, and we just kind of wanted to chat about what your role is here within EE, um, where you see see it heading, what we've done so far, and just and talk about your thinking in this space. So, um, first of all, um, what was your experience before EE, and, and what led you to be interested in working in this area of business transformation? So I mean, I've had a, a long career in um, primarily digital transformation, really, probably about 17, 18 years now. Um, I had a bit of a, a fairly, very boring, boring career up until the, the dot-com boom. And then uh, in 1998, uh, I founded a web development company. Um, so sort of took advantage of the, the explosion in uh, in the internet, um, dial-up internet access, and uh, a friend of mine uh, and I basically founded a, a web development company. Mm. And it was a bit bizarre move for us. He was a gardener, and um, you know I was working for a marketing company, and I didn't have a PC, didn't have an internet connection. He did, and we just sort of landed on an idea. Yeah. Um, we didn't really see too many people building websites for um, for small businesses, and certainly not cost-effective. So we, mm. we, we spent some time learning how to do it. So I got quite hands-on. Um, using you know free tools like front page express etc and it got to the point where people were asking us to build websites for them so we quit our jobs which was pretty high risk um, i had a baby at the time mm -hmm. and um, we got some funding from lloyd's bank and um, we set up um, our company called fwd and um, had a really tough first year really, really tough sort of trying to grow it and getting into business really with no experience and mm -hmm. um, you know we sort of had no experience in, in business at all so very much sort of learning, learning on our feet and mm -hmm. making lots of mistakes and, and learning as we went. Um, but we built a relationship, these were pre-Google days, so mm -hmm. we built a relationship with um, a search engine called UK Plus, which was staffed by a team of journalists. And the way they ranked you was based on your relationship with them. So if they really liked you, you would effectively get to the top of the rankings. Yeah. And um, we built a great relationship and went to number one on UK Plus, which was the most popular search engine in the UK at the time for web development. And um, that, that drove a lot of business. 
and um, really, really raised our profile. And uh, you know, a tipping point for us was when those same journalists wrote um, a web guide, the Metro web guide, which was published in the Daily Mail and the Evening Standard. And it was the top 50 small web development companies, well, sorry, the top 50 web businesses in the southeast of England. Yeah. And we were ranked as one of the top six small web development companies. And as a consequence of that, interest just sort of exploded. And um, you know, we, we, we sort of generated hundreds of leads mm-hmm. you know, in, in a matter of weeks where we hadn't even generated any real leads in, in a matter of months. Right. And are you uh, kind of bringing staff in to help service those those clients that are all showing interest? Yeah, I mean, it was, it was affecting myself and my business partner and then an army of contractors. Mm-hmm. So it was all sort of flexible demand. But we were learning how to build a business and, and how to build a brand. And, and, and I guess that was the real success. You know, we built this brand and this perception that we were a big organisation when really it was two people and an army of contractors. And in the end, um, scoop.com, uh, there was a lab, it was sort of like the yellow pages, the mm-hmm. online yellow pages. The sales team from scoop.com basically formed a company called Surfweb. Uh, and they were great sales guys. So they were walking around trading estates, selling web packages with nobody to build them. So they gave them to us to build. So we ended up becoming this factory where they would turn up every day and uh, give us a CD with copy and pictures. And we would build these websites, quite formulaic really. Um, but it started to generate some really great revenue for us. But as we were doing that, we were still working on our presence and our brand. And um, I went into the office one morning and there was a fax from the NHS asking us to pitch for the rebuild of the NHS website. And I remember picking up the phone and calling them and just double checking that they'd sent it to the right place. Oh, so the NHS. The <laughs> NHS, yeah. And um, yeah, they, they knew who we were. They, were. they loved our portfolio. They loved what we'd done. And I guess that's when we got to the point where we realised, A, we couldn't do it. And we just didn't have the scale. Um, but we'd created something quite valuable. Yeah. Uh, and in the end, Surfweb, who'd been giving us all that work, bought the business. And they wanted to buy the brand, wanted to buy the, um, the reputation that we, we developed. So we sold 50% of the company to Surfweb. I retained 25%. My business partner kept 25%. He became a director of Surfweb and I left and um, decided to go and do other things. And that's when my career really took off. Sure. Um, it went to, um, in, into AOL and, and sort of exploded from there. Right. Uh, why did you decide to make that leap and do different things? Was it just that you felt that you'd done enough creatively or learned all you could from that side of it? I saw a real tipping point. You can see the dot-com um, bubble was about to burst. So people's expectations had gone up, but the money they were willing to invest in building web presences had gone down. And uh, I just felt that um, we, weren't, we, we wouldn't be as successful. Mm-hmm. And um, I had an opportunity to go to AOL. AOL were a startup in the UK at the time, and uh, they were looking to really transform internet access. So I had an opportunity to go there um, to sort of transform the dial-up experience as they launch flat rate internet access and then um, lead the delivery of the transformation to broadband. So launch different tiers of broadband in the UK, mm-hmm. uh, sort of you know, 512, 1 meg, 2 meg, 8 meg, etc. and had sort of five or six years, you know, great, great years there. Uh, again, sort of really learning um, how to transform a company from, I guess, the seed of an idea into, you know, the number one broadband operator in the UK. Sure. So in a way, the emphasis from quite early on has been about business building rather than... It's, it's about outcomes. Mm-hmm. You know, if I think about my, my own business, I mean, there was an outcome there for us and that outcome was to create something really significant. It wasn't just about an income and uh, revenue and, and doing great work. It was We had a vision mm-hmm. and that was to, you know, to create this business that, that really stood out and create a brand that people would really resonate with. And, and we managed to achieve that. And with AOL, you know, they wanted to, to be the number one access provider in the UK. They wanted to diversify and get into telephony and mobile and TV. Mm-hmm. And just before I left, we had a strategy to do that. 
Yeah, huge, huge learnings yeah. for myself. And, mm -hmm. you know, as you say, really sort of cut my teeth. Very, very different experience to running my own business. Mm -hmm. um, but, but yeah, huge, a huge learning process. But you then went to O2 straight from there or? Um, had a long career in mobile, went mm -hmm. to T-Mobile, then to Vodafone and then O2. Mm -hmm. uh, and again, consistently in those three businesses leading digital transformation. Mm -hmm. So at a time where um, mobile was high margin, high revenue, and um, we're, we're about to go through a massive amount of change where its products and services were becoming commoditized. So couldn't afford the overheads, so a big retail network um, in the high street, um, huge cost in the contact center. So the mandate in all three businesses was, how do we drive that business out of that expensive retail estate and contact center into, into digital? Mm -hmm. So I led the transformation in, in those three businesses and um, O2 is where I first came across Equal Experts, first worked with sure. Equal Experts. Yeah, I, having worked with O2 for some years. Um, and what made you interested in coming to work at a consultancy that deals with clients from loads of different sectors? Was it primarily one of working in those different sectors or just fancy the change or? Yeah, I mean, I'd always been client side, never service side. And, and I guess I'd, I'd grown increasingly frustrated over the years about the consultancy services that I was buying. Mm -hmm. uh, you, you know, when you're leading digital transformation and you start engaging with consultancies, a lot of the time they bring a playbook to the table where the answer is already prescribed without really understanding the question. Mm -hmm. And I'd certainly seen over the, the last few years that the, the answer that I was looking for was very different to the one they were proposing. It wasn't necessarily about technology. Most organizations I've been in have invested in lightweight technologies. They've invested in DevOps. They've invested in migration to the cloud and they've tried to go agile. Actually, it's a lot more about adoption of those digital capabilities. How do you get customers to really engage with the, 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 the technology investments that you've made? And how do you drive channel migration? How do you encourage customers to move from retail estates and branches and contact centers and really start to adopt digital technology and digital capability? Sure. So that sounds like you're coming on to something we've spoken about before, which is this uh, kind of concept of intentional experience. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Um, uh, almost like it was planned that we might talk about this. <laughs> and um, yeah, I, can you just tell us what intentional experience is about? I mean, you, you've already sort of described it's about that channel shift, yeah. but maybe if you could just elaborate on the concept. Yeah, I mean, I guess the, it originated from some work I did at Sky TV. Mm -hmm. um, and when I joined Sky, I was their digital transformation director. So working in um, the, the service side of the business and Sky had a challenge to save a significant amount of money um, from, uh, from its customer service uh, cost base as it needed to reinvest those savings into competing for the Premier League rights with BT. Mm. So it was really time bound, so quite an aggressive um, time scale. So it was all about channel shift. And um, we spent the first year building lots of capability. And again, on the premise, if you build it, they will come. And, and of course that's flawed. You know, Customers don't just adopt because you've built something. Mm -hmm. So we designed what we call an intentional experience. And this is about being very, very clear about the customer transactions that make sense to be executed in certain channels, predicated on a customer's ability to get the answer right first time. So you intentionally drive them to do something in the channel where you know they're gonna have a great experience and you know they've got the best chance of getting the answer they need right first time. Mm -hmm. So it sort of bucks the trend of these omni-channel experiences that, that lots of companies um, deploy. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, in, in markets and you know, companies where um, margins are tight and, and costs are, are a real driver. Um, an omni-channel experience means the cost to sell and the cost to serve could actually go up because you've got multiple contacts to complete one interaction. 
Sure. So at Sky, with this intentional experience, we wanted to make sure that you got the answer right first time. Mm -hmm. So wherever we believed you were going to get the best experience, you had the best chance of getting that answer straight away, which meant you didn't need to recontact and you didn't need to hop around uh, multiple channels. Sure. So it's mutually beneficial, great customer experience and savings for, for the organisation. Yeah, and I guess um, what kind of actions suit which kind of channel will, will vary from client to client and, and business to business in general what sort of channels are best suited to what kind of activities? Yeah, there were some principles we deployed. Um, so anything that is low emotion, lower complexity, and low value um, tends to execute quite well in a non-assisted channel. Mm -hmm. So digital self-service, a mobile app, uh, etc. cetera. Uh, anything that's high emotion, high complexity, and high value, um, our philosophy was drive that into an assisted channel. So there's always gonna be a role for customer service. There's always gonna be a role for a face-to-face -face conversation but you, they're the exceptions rather than the rule. So anything that's high emotion or high complexity just doesn't translate well into a digital experience, typically. So our, our view was drive that into uh, those assisted channels and drive those sort of high volume but, but low value, low complexity journeys into, into digital. Sure, so um, kind of playing to the strengths of the, the natural strengths of each channel. Correct. Um, and helping customers in the way they expect to be helped. So. Yeah, exactly. And, and a lot of organisations start off with this digital first mindset or digital only mindset. Mm -hmm. They believe that they can migrate 100% of their journeys and transactions into, into digital. Mm -hmm. And I think it's been proven over the years that that, that just doesn't happen. Um, you know, there is emotion you know, in, in, in certain customer journeys, in certain customer interactions, things like billing, for example, mm -hmm. uh, complex help journeys just don't translate well into simple online experiences. So, you know, focus your most precious resource, which is your people, to deal with those most valuable transactions. Um, but the hygiene stuff, the basic transactional stuff, that's the things that you can really execute effectively in the digital estate. Sure. Um, do you think that drive, to, that initial drive to try and do everything online was almost the shock of the new and companies struggling to keep up with what they saw as, you know, the new digital but, you know, heavyweights kind of coming to take their lunch or... Yeah, and I think probably um, misunderstanding customer behaviour and customer expectation. Mm -hmm. um, you know, people believe in that's what customers wanted. But I think insight and research shows that, that that's not necessarily the case. There were definitely certain segments and demographics, mm -hmm. you know, who will absolutely be looking to do as much as possible in non-assisted channels. Um, but there'll be other segments and other demographics who, who, who won't. So it's just making sure that you're applying that segmentation lens over the top of your channel strategies and making sure that you're not turning customers off by forcing them down a path that they're just not going to interact with, which then creates risk of churn and you know dissatisfaction, etc. Sure. So in a way, you mentioned these sort of big digital heavyweights, you know, companies like Netflix and Amazon where you know digital native audience. Yeah. And then you've got companies that are more established like Sky, you know, very um, mass market. Uh, propositions that are talking to all strata of society and yeah. they're almost at a slight disadvantage because they've got the new the new breed of consumer and the uh, the old guard uh, to look after at the same time yeah but their business models are inherently more complex as well mm -hmm. so if you look at sky's product set for example you know tv broadband telephony you know broadband support broadband help is actually quite technical and it's quite difficult those journeys don't translate very well into simple online experiences. Sure. One, if your broadband's down, mm -hmm. you're not going to be able to you know, access yeah, the internet. The as well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So you need to pick up the phone and talk mm -hmm. to somebody. And the billing queries are, are quite complex as well because they're variable. So if you, um, you, you know, you've got mobile, for example, if you go over your mobile minutes at Sky, 
you know, you need to pay extra. If you book movies, you need to pay extra. Um, lots of people are trying to downgrade and upgrade their packages. So there is variability in the bill, sure. which means typically they want to talk to somebody. Mm-hmm. Something like Netflix, it's a subscription model and the price is fixed. Mm-hmm. So typically their product set and um, their, their help journeys are very, very simple and straightforward, which means it translates really well into a digital only experience. Sure. Um, you, you mentioned subscriptions there actually, and I was going to ask you about that because it's something you've blogged about on the uh, Equal Experts blog already. Yeah. Um, and about how many more subscription models there are now. Do you think that something's here to stay or that the balance will sort of shift back to an older model? You know, has the pendulum swung or will it swing back? I think it's, it's still really early days. Yeah, you know, we are seeing obviously a growth, a growth in that space. Uh, I mean, it, and it changes the whole customer relationship. You know, it is about customer relationships rather than selling products. So you have to really think about that, that customer life cycle. So we'll start to see more subscriptions definitely. And we'll start to see, I think, more artisan services sold through subscriptions as well. Um, and there's certainly growing demand, again, from certain segments for those sort of products. And subscription models seem to be good value for money. Sure. So uh, yeah, we'll see a growth, but I think it's still very early days. It's, it's interesting because um, away from where I'm into my photography and uh, Adobe are the big player on the software side there. And you see people um, of a certain segment reacting against the subscription model and, and they've, they've adapted their offering by doing a photographer's package that is just a couple of elements of it, like Lightroom and Photoshop, yeah. but you still get this kind of store uh, old guard that doesn't want to shift to a subscription model, yeah. and that's helping other other companies and you know new challenges come up with their own, and, and they're they're using a you know you buy once and own it as yeah. a selling point. So I guess it's people need to feel that they're not paying for something mm-hmm. that they're not going to use. Mm-hmm. So if you're if you're buying a subscription, then you're going to get maximum value from it. You know the subscriptions I, you know the, the the products I subscribe to. You know I haven't bought bacon from a supermarket in probably two years. Mm-hmm. You know um, I get artisan bacon sent through the post every two weeks, and and it's fantastic. You know and I, I can't buy that product anywhere else. Sure. So I get real value from it. You know we, um, you know, razors. I don't buy razors from the supermarket. I get those sent through. You know once once a month. And when I compare the value of that subscription versus buying the product from from the supermarket. You know the quality and the price just don't compare sure so there's real value and when you're satisfied the subscription cost ceases to become an issue really I guess. correct yeah. yeah exactly right yeah and, it, and it's convenient you know i don't have to actively go out and purchase mm-hmm. the product it, it arrives in the post and it's it's taken care of sure why is it important do you think that organizations are considering this phase of intentional experience now is it is it a a greater degree of maturity over how to approach digital from a few years back or has something else happened that makes it important to consider this now? Um, I think this is still a new concept for a lot of organisations, you know, certainly the companies that I talk to. The starting point is still very much about we need to be omni-channel, we need to be multi-channel, you know, we need to drive all of our journeys into every single possible channel and join those experiences up. Um, but I'm not I'm, I'm not sure that's 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 necessary. I think you, sh- you should be omni-channel where it makes sense to be, mm-hmm. um, but really understand your customers, really look at the data and the insight that you have on your customers and their behaviours and their preferences, and then design channel strategies that, that make sense, that are beneficial to your customers, but are also beneficial to organisations. And I think those, we, we, you know, we're seeing so much disruption mm-hmm. um, in so many markets now, and as a consequence of that, you know, margins are becoming tighter, cost is becoming a real focus 
Uh, and my view is, you know, intentional experiences are uh, a, a, an enabler mm-hmm. for removing cost, but balancing customer experience at the same time. Sure. You know, and, and when you kind of introduce this concept to clients, do you find it's something they're immediately receptive to, or is it still a bit of a shock that they need to think about? And I think that, I think they're receptive to it. I think there's a nervousness as well. Um, there's a there's a concern that you're trying to drive customers to do certain things that they maybe they, they don't want to do. Mm-hmm. And this is why really understanding what makes sense to execute where um, is so important. You know, don't drive a customer or, or advise a customer to do something in a certain channel where they're just going to have a poor experience. Sure. So I tend to balance um, a number of objectives. You know, look at the volume of transactions that you would like to drive into a certain channel so mm-hmm. you can start to look at how much value you can create, how much cost you can save. Um, look, at the, look at customer satisfaction or NPS. So make sure you set a very clear target and optimize that journey in pursuit of that target. So you're constantly optimizing in pursuit of a brilliant customer experience. And then thirdly, make sure you're you're relentlessly optimizing for goal achievement. So you're looking at conversion funnels and making sure that if customers drop out, you're understanding why they're dropping out and you're addressing those problems, you're addressing those concerns and constantly optimizing that experience to ensure that when they do land there, um, they're gonna get that answer right first time and then they'll stick. There's no need then for them to drop out and go into contact sensors or, or, or into the retail estate. Yeah. So a lot of this is predicated on having really good data to work with and um, so you can respond to what's going on. Um, is that stage one of this process or do you find that um, organisations are already quite clued in and have the data but aren't sure what they should be doing with it? No, the data is never really in a, in, a, in a good state. And so what we typically do is go in and try to baseline how these customer journeys are performing. So look at the universe of transactions um, that that an organisation typically does and and, and manages and where they're currently available. So we map every single interaction, every channel, um, and then we'll mine that data to look at volumes, which is quite difficult, um, Mm -hmm. particularly in the contact centre, for example, because you're reliant on call reasoning being accurate. So sometimes you have to make some assumptions or use some proxies. But uh, you look at the volumes of transactions, you'll try to baseline the customer experience, and you'll try to baseline goal achievement. Yeah. So you get a really, really clear view of how that state is currently performing. And then we'll apply some those principles that I talked about earlier. Mm. So if it's low value, low complexity, low emotion, we'd like to try and drive those into the non-assisted um, channels and high value, high complexity, high emotion into the assisted channels. And then you have to categorize every single journey. So really start to look at which, which bucket does it fall into. Yeah. Um, and then you, that's your intention. So mm. you, then you can be really clear that these journeys are migrating here, and these are the volume shifts that we're looking for. Mm-hmm. These are the goal achievement targets we're looking for, and these are the customer satisfaction targets mm-hmm. that we're looking for. And then your rock model needs to change to, 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 to manage that. Yeah, so in an ideal world, this is all happening well before any sort of, I won't say actual work, but you know, the delivery teams that are going out to deliver this stuff. Um, you're, you're really suggesting that we need to be in right at the start of Correct. the engagement. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, so this sets the direction for the whole transformation. Mm-hmm. And what, what I typically find is it's less about technology, it's more about user experience. Mm-hmm. I mean, you will find gaps in capability, so particularly where goal achievement is low. Um, you may find it's low because customers are crying out for a certain piece of technology or, or a certain service. So you need to fill that gap. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, tic- but typically you find that the journeys are performing reasonably well. You just have to mine the data and look at those conversion funnels and understand why customers are failing and then optimize that experience and tweak those journeys. Mm-hmm. Um, to make sure that uh, that you improve those those KPIs. Yeah, you're working with people almost at the, the, the strategic side of things. Yeah. 
um, and then there's the actual execution side of it. Yeah. So how do you work and kind of join all that up with um, the skills we have within Equal Experts to actually go out and deliver it? Yeah, I mean, I don't think the, the two propositions are, are really separate or different. I, I guess what I'm trying to do here is engage at, at exact level at sea level. So build those relationships, typically with COOs and CIOs uh, mm -hmm. from day one, and, and really try to understand their, their biggest challenges, their biggest, most complex business problems, mm -hmm. um, and help them find solutions to those. So if I think about the work we're doing at Thames Water at the moment, um, we've been working with their new chief digital officer, and he's been very clear on you know, his vision for 2020 and, and, and where he'd like to take the organisation. Mm -hmm. But what was really important to him was establishing some delivery ca uh, credibility first. So rather than tie them up in months of strategy or weeks of strategy, um, we found a first use case that we could go after mm -hmm. and create some foundations for transformation, um, but actually get some value out the door really quickly. Mm -hmm. And what that does is establish some early credibility for him, new into the role, but also demonstrates our credibility as a delivery partner. And I'm a massive believer in delivering value every 90 days. Mm -hmm. So I think the days of big monolithic transformation programs where benefit is deferred two to three years down the line, they're, they're, they're dead. Mm -hmm. Because the average life of an exec in any role is probably no more than two to three years. So they'll ignore transformation if they can't pull any benefit from it. Sure. It will be done you know, away from the core business and that's why transformation fails. So everything we're trying to do, we're trying to do through the line. And so business as usual can pull benefit from it. So it's all part of a big vision for transformation but it's delivering value every single, every 90 days, mm -hmm. um, which is in pursuit of that transformation goal, but it means the business can get benefit from it right now. Okay. And, and that's exactly what we're doing at, uh, at Thames Water. How far in advance do you establish what those 90 days are gonna hold? Is it um, looking at the near term and the, uh, you know, the next couple of segments of, of three months, or, is, or do you look way ahead? Um, and how important is it to be flexible as that? We'll go after the low-hanging fruit to start mm -hmm. with, and, and and there always is, right? There's always opportunities that um, that you can go after and you can create foundations of transformation. And we've got unbelievable technical brains here at Equal Experts, which, which is why I came here. You know, if I think about all the organisations I've worked with or, or, or bought consultancy services from, the reason I continued to work with Equal Experts as a client was because I never came across anybody with their capability anywhere. So I know when we find a problem, if we gather our best technical brains, we'll find a solution, and, and, and we've been doing that. So that establishes credibility very, very quickly. And as soon as we get going, as soon as we start delivering, we're then working with the client to identify the next 90 days. Sure. So you're literally two to three weeks in, you've got some momentum, and you're already thinking about what's the next outcome. Mm -hmm. But again, it's all part of a bigger story, all part of a bigger picture. Sure. So it's just trying to be really creative and look at how you slice it, and how you can be really pragmatic and find the path of least resistance to get value out the door as quickly as possible without compromising on that sort of strategic vision. Do you think there's such a thing as a sort of typical transformation or do you find they radically different as, as you go across and talk to different businesses? Yeah, they're, they're, they're very different. Mm -hmm. um, every every problem is, is different. I mean, there's, there's common themes. Mm -hmm. You know, disruption is obviously a, a massive theme and, and it can be quite abstract. Um, but so many industries are being disrupted and I think transformation in those markets isn't about growth it's about competitive response how do you remain competitive in, in these markets mm -hmm. where you know non-traditional competition is coming in and eating your eating your mm -hmm. lunch so you know in some cases yeah that's that's fairly traditional but the answers are um, often very very different for some organizations it will be op model change mm -hmm. for some it will be new capabilities for some it will be new new, new, new products 
Um, but certainly some of the strategies that I've deployed, like intentional experiences, mm-hmm. they, they translate across all, all sectors. You know, we, we talked about it at Barclays when, when I was there yeah. uh, recently as well. So, yeah, they're, they're deployable across multiple industries, but I think the problem statements are very different depending on you know, mm-hmm. the client. With, with disruption, the time a company chooses to act against that um, is going to affect what options they have and yeah. what's available to them to do. Have you, have you got any thoughts on when is the optimal time to start thinking, well, actually, yeah, we're in danger from this competitor and we need to do something, or is it a case of biding your time and, and being more strategic? Yeah, I mean, the best time to act is when you're ahead of the game, when you're, when you're at the top of your game. But there's very few organisations that do that because there's no burning platform. Um, I think, as I said earlier, most execs or a lot of execs are in role for, for fairly short periods of time mm. and they're incentivised to hit numbers every, every quarter. So if your focus is on you know, hitting your targets and hitting your numbers, it's very difficult to think sort of five, ten years into, into the future. Sure. So you just don't see many organisations reacting um, really early. Mm-hmm. Everybody tends to react really late and by then your options are fairly limited um, and then it's about sort of operating model transformation you know these intentional experiences channel strategies channel migration looking to optimize your model by, by shifting volume into your sort of low-cost channels that tends to be what, what organizations do and I, and I think there's very very few examples of any of organizations that have fundamentally changed what they do you know the essence of their of their business you know there's very very few you know globally how much of this is down to cultural change within the organization because you need the support of the whole organization to do them right you do yeah i mean the the, the people and cultural aspects are are, are massive uh, you know and, and it's probably the biggest enabler for digital transformation a lot of organizations are brilliant you think about innovation they're brilliant at coming up with ideas but really poor how they execute them because backing new products and new services for different types of customers into you know an old organization is really really hard mm-hmm. you know the organizations just aren't set up to receive them and that's why innovation tends to tends to fail um, and i'm a big believer in in giving delivery teams autonomy as well uh, you know allowing them to find the answers to, to problems so if you're very very clear on context so you're clear on um, what's really important you know the strategic drivers the kpis the value that you want to create then give these teams autonomy to determine the right solutions. So rather than one person determining what they think the answer is, let these guys who are experts, and, and by these guys I mean multidisciplinary teams, mm-hmm. so experts from your operation, from your commercial teams, from your technology teams, let them come together around a problem. Mm-hmm. Be very, very clear what success looks like, but let them find the answers. Um, and incentivize them in that way as well. And, and we did that quite successfully again at Sky. Mm-hmm. The, the direction that we set was the intentional experience you know, the, with the channel strategy and the channel migration targets. And we formed teams around each of those customer journeys. Mm-hmm. And we said to those teams, um, your measures for success are your channel migration target, your NPS target, and your goal achievement target. Mm-hmm. And that's up to you to determine how you get there. Sure. Um, and we created um, as much data and as much insight as we possibly could. But if they made one change to that journey and achieved those targets, then they were a success. If right. they made 100 changes and failed to hit those targets, then they failed. But the key there was the cultural change that we enacted by incentivizing commercial, operational and technical people in exactly the same way. Mm-hmm. So rather than having their own technical objectives and commercial objectives, etc., they just had objectives for their customer journey. Yeah, so that none of them are fighting against each other. And, They're and all it, collaborating. And it ties it to the outcome, as, as you mentioned 
right at the start. A- absolutely. Yeah, it's all outcome focused. You're driving them to collaborate. Mm-hmm. And what you get is this great healthy dynamic where mm-hmm. commercial people are challenging technical decisions and technical people are challenging commercial decisions, mm-hmm. etc. Because you've all got skin in the game. Yeah. Um, and it's a really empowering environment to work in. And also you get uh, you know, a multi-team culture. Correct. And, and it's really the overall strategies ensuring that they're not fighting against each other or pulling in other directions. It, it, exactly right. Yeah. Everybody's aligned. Everybody's heading in the same direction. Everybody knows what success looks like. Uh, and they're all empowered. Um, and then if they hit those targets, you can stand that team down. You can spin them off to go and work on another problem. Mm-hmm. So it's getting people to really focus on solving business problems mm-hmm. and incentivizing them um, if they're successful. Sure. Um, if you were asked what's the ideal gig that you'd love to work on, um, does anything spring to mind? Um, that's a great question. I love I love working in um, delivery environments where markets have been disrupted because that creates tension and, and healthy tension. So if you're if you're into delivery, my career has been you know a long um, it's been a long career working in delivery, and there's nothing like that sort of intensity where you know, it really matters to the business. You know, the, 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 the future of the organisation, the success of the organisation mm-hmm. is dependent on your ability to execute. Uh, and it's just a really great dynamic, particularly when you're doing something that's cutting edge as, as, as well. The time I spent at O2 was, was, was fantastic. You know, it had been buoyed by the success of the iPhone mm-hmm. and had two years of unbelievable growth. Because it had the, the iPhone exclusively at first. Like, yeah, so, exactly. Yeah. So the, the pain that it started to go through was delayed because of, because of that. It stole huge market share mm-hmm. and um, you know, grew significantly. And the other operators had to cut their cloth accordingly. They mm-hmm. had to give value away uh, in order to try and compete. It was the only way they could compete. Uh, and O2 were an organisation that started to see the consequences of not having the iPhone mm-hmm. before they lost the iPhone, which is why they invested so heavily in, 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 in digital. Um, but real focus on customer experience as well. So it wasn't just about build a load of digital capability and drive sh- channel shift. They wanted to lead through customer experience. They wanted to differentiate through customer experience. Mm-hmm. So if they lost the exclusivity in the iPhone, they wanted to have the best customer experience in the market. Okay. So there was real pull, pull from the whole business um, for the work that we were doing. Mm-hmm. And that intensity um, was, was terrific because the business plan was dependent on it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it was, it, was, it was a great time. And you know, if I could do more work like that, Mm-hmm. where there's that great intensity and that, that real pull, then um, yeah, I'm, I, I'd love to do that again. There are probably traditional players in this kind of more strategic guidance space. Um, why should companies be talking to equal experts about it, do you think? I mean, I, I, I joined here, I think as I said earlier, because of my frustration with um, the services that I, w- I was buying. You know, I don't believe digital transformation is just about technology. I, I think it's part of it. But I believe these channel strategies uh, and a focus on customer experience is is so important. That's the next wave of, of digital transformation. Companies have invested so much money in these capabilities. They need these strategies over the top now to get value from those investments. And I just haven't seen any organization um, really talking to companies um, about, about how you solve those, those sorts of problems. Um, I think there's real credibility in uh, an organization that has experienced client side rather than service side. So not career consultants, you know, selling um, off the shelf solutions or playbooks, mm-hmm. you know, real world solutions to real world problems. So if I think, you know, a year to 18 months into the future and, and the business that I'm trying to build here at Equal Experts, that's what I want us to be known for. Mm-hmm. You know, we are experts in our field in digital transformation uh, because we've been client side and we've lived and breathed these challenges as clients 
and we've got solutions that we've proven really, really work, and we deliver value very, very quickly. Uh, it's 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 as simple as that. It's real world solutions for real world problems, delivering value every every ninety days. Great. Okay. Well, um, so if anyone's facing those sorts of problems, they know where to come. Um, we'll make sure your uh, contact details are easily found alongside this podcast. Great. Thank so, you very much. Thank you very much for your time. No worries. Thank you, John. Cheers. Sorry. So there we are. Uh, I hope you found that interesting. I know I did. It's um, it's clear just from that snippet really of, of Darren's thinking that he's deeply knowledgeable on the topic and I know he's very keen to start talking to all kinds of businesses uh, to explain in more detail of how equal experts can help uh, in that upfront strategic look at, at what's required to uh, set up that intentional experience. Um, you can get hold of him via our email address uh, hello at equalexperts.com uh, and we'll make sure it gets through to him if you want to use that. Uh, you can also give us all feedback on uh, our Twitter, at Equal Experts. Um, I think that's it for now, though. Uh, we'll look uh, to do future podcasts covering other areas of, of what we do at Equal Experts. Um, as we, we kind of have talent through the whole stack, um, we could go anywhere. So it might be security, it might be engagement management, um, it, could, it could be all of those things and more. So um, look forward to exploring where we go next. And uh, hope you enjoyed this and hope to see you again some other time. Bye.